Hello and welcome to Book of Leaves. My name is Cara Kearney and I am your host. Hello and welcome back to Book of Leaves, an Irish podcast where I interview people in Ireland or from the country who are doing something good for the planet and the whole idea is I and you, the listeners, can take a leaf out of their book to add to our own way of eco-friendly living. And in this episode, I am delighted to have the one and only Anya Murray, who is a writer as of this year. She has a wonderful book out called Wild Embrace, which I would absolutely recommend. It's a lovely starting point if you're not in environmental movement or if you are well into the environmental movement it's still a gorgeous beautiful book with some amazing exercises that we can all do to reconnect with nature and Anya talks about the importance of that um, in this episode but she's also a climate communicator she has her own podcast which I'll link in the show notes and she hosted EcoEye a documentary for a few years that a lot of you might be familiar with but before that she actually worked in policy and advocacy and I picked her brain a bit about that as well because it's just one of those industries that if I hear the the name policy my my brain just goes to mush so I picked her brain to figure out a little bit about how that works and yeah I think you guys will really enjoy this chat so I'll hand the mic over to her soon before I do that there might be some listeners here from the Irish Podcast Awards hello and you're very welcome because they're going to be happening tomorrow evening Tuesday the 21st of November so we are very excited to have a night mingling with other podcasters I really enjoyed the ceremony last year of course I won last year but I don't expect that this year because I'm in I'm in the category with some brilliant podcasts like Climate Alarm Clock and everything so we'll see what happens but I'm just so happy to be nominated and I was nominated for the specialist award as well which is not one that I submitted for so yeah I'm looking forward to that and I do want you to stick around because at the end of the interview I I want to share with you what I'm going to be doing for episode 100 which is upcoming very soon and it's going to involve your input and you guys sending me a message or an email or voice note and perhaps me sending you out a lovely hamper so stay tuned after that after uh, this lovely interview with Anya I hope you guys enjoy and I'll pass the mic to her now I'm delighted to be on with you here today. Yeah, I'm an ecologist, which means that I study nature, I guess, the science of biodiversity. I've always focused on Ireland. Um, I've worked for, for many years in the NGO sector in Ireland. So with groups like the Irish Wildlife Trust, Ontashka, Birdwatch Ireland. But in the last couple of years, I've focused more on communications. So now I do nature file, a little a weekly dollop of uh, little intriguing things about Irish nature on Lyric FM every week. And I write a column for the Irish Examiner newspaper. Uh, and I wrote a book uh, that came out just a half a year ago there called Wild Embrace. And that's all about connecting with Ireland's natural world. So I'm more of a, a writer, I guess, now and, and um, broadcaster. I've been doing Eco Eye as well, which is a, a documentary series on RTE1 television. So I've been presenting that for eight years. Uh, sadly, that is now finished. This will be the first year I'm not filming for eco eye and i make radio documentaries as well about ireland's natural world so 
yeah yeah so a few, communic- a few balls in the communicating air. I guess nature is like now at the heart of what you do in so many different media forms which is great and we'll probably delve more into that later but the first question I always love to ask guests is why were you inspired to take action was it I guess your I know from reading your book you always had like a love and a curiosity of nature which is really important but what I guess triggered you to start taking action or working around it yeah, it's a really good question. And it's hard to, to trace it back to maybe one event or one person. As you say, I grew up in the countryside, curious, immersed in nature. Uh, and I always loved things like the nature table in school and kind of asking questions and finding out about things. But I remember in primary school, I had one teacher in fifth class called Ms. Malin. And this is quite funny because I mention her often, right? Yeah. And I did an event two weeks ago in Dunleary Rathdown Lexicon Library there, climate writing, a really gorgeous event. And a woman came up to me afterwards and I was like, she looks familiar. And she goes, Anya, it's I don't even remember her first name. Basically, it was Miss Malin had come and attended the event and I hadn't seen her since I was 11 years old. And she like I remember I came across recently a project I did on pollution when I was 11. And I remember the, the it was acid rain was the big issue then. And I remember the photo, like a cutout of a magazine that I had on the front cover of this handwritten essay on pollution. And she was brilliant. And then I guess that inspired me to be interested in environmental issues as opposed to just nature and environment. And then when I was in in secondary school, there was that whole thing of French um, nuclear testing in, in the South Pacific. And that was a really big issue. And Greenpeace were, were very involved in protesting against it and highlighting this issue for people. So I used to mitch off school when I was 15 and cycle off to the French embassy to the Greenpeace protests and spend the afternoon protesting against atomic uh, testing, nuclear testing with Greenpeace. So that was uh, many, many years ago. That was like three decades ago. And that, I guess, yeah, that that's when I started being more active with with the NGO or the, 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 the becoming an activist, I'd say. That's amazing. Like a lot of people will mitch to go smoke cigarettes over the back wall. And now there's you. No, I did that too. <laughs> But it's nice to have, you know, hey, ma'am, I'm not just mitching for one reason. I'm also trying to save the planet. You know, it's a lot harder to get into trouble for something like that. That's really, really lovely. And I think it's amazing to see how important teachers can be. I've got a good few teachers who listen to this podcast and do amazing work. I've had some of them on, um, like uh, Patrick Irwin before. And, you know, you, you it's kind of like they're guardians of our children for such a huge amount of of time so that's really lovely that she she recognized you and went up to you and said hello I couldn't believe it she came along to the event and she came up to me afterwards and I was just so it was really amazing to see her it was so strange and it was so amazing because I was so I was on you know it's an event and people are coming yes, up afterwards yeah. and wanting to chat I went away to the bathroom afterwards and I just like started kind of welling up going oh my god oh. I can't believe this Malin came along and there did she did you get is. to tell her that she had inspired you I did manage to tell her. Yeah, oh, I, 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 we didn't we didn't chat for very long, but I did I did tell her that. Yeah. Oh, what a lovely thing to know because all the work that you're doing now is just so amazing. And so you obviously ended up then working kind of around ng the NGO kind of sector. Is that how you kind of got into policy and advocacy as well? 
funnily enough, I, so I went and studied environmental science in college and focused on uh, plant ecology. I wanted to know uh, plants, trees and plants are kind of my, my, my favorite thing. And I specifically in college didn't do any of the policy modules. I was like, no, I'm going to be a scientist. I'm going to find out all the things that we need to know to make everything better. Uh, and I'm not doing any of that kind of lawmaking, policy, decision making. Uh, I'm not going to get into that. That's not for me. Mm. And then funnily enough, I started once I was out of college, I started doing hedgerow surveys and making recommendations. And it took a year or two of that to realize that you make the recommendations all you like and nobody's really listening and nobody's going to act on it. And you can write a report and another report, and another report and offer your advice. And very little happens as a result. You have to actually go out there and carry those recommendations to in that case, it was people like the, the planners and the engineers and the roads engineers and the councillors in the local authorities. So started doing that. And I guess I found that that worked quite well. So started getting into to what I would call policy and advocacy, which is bringing the, the science to the decision makers and and advising them or informing them telling them or pushing them um, what kind of changes we need to make in the way that we run things, whether that's how we we plan our towns and cities or what grants we give to farmers to do particular things or how we regulate, you know, discharge licenses to to rivers or all of these things that tend to be in the hands of, you know, decision makers, the people who work in, in local authorities or in state agencies or in government. So when I went into the, the NGO sector, I was doing a mix of, of research, ecological research, which is always wonderful to, to keep going out and keep discovering and keep being curious, but also communicating a lot of those results actively to decision makers. Yeah. And I guess as someone who, like I was saying to you before, when I hear policy and advocacy, like I used to be very academic, but now academic speak just makes my brain go lula. And I know not everyone listening, a lot of people are very involved with, po- with policy, I'd say that listen to this. But as a job, like when people say they work on environmental policy or advocacy, does that look like you, obviously you say you do the research and then you compile the data and then you go to the local authority or your council or the the government and then you're kind of, is it kind of like a bargaining where you're trying to go, here look we need this, but they're saying, oh we can't give you that much uh, land for biodiversity. Is it kind of you you work together to kind of create their policies or how does it work? No, that would be nice. That sounds nice. But I mean, it's not bargaining because I've nothing to bargain with. You know, they kind of flick yeah. you off like a little pest most of the time. Uh, leave us alone. We don't want to know about curlew decline. Like when I worked for Birdwatch Ireland, we started to do work on, on breeding waders. Now, they Birdwatch had been doing that, that for quite a long time. And I've been gathering up the data about birds like curlew and lapwing and snipe uh who have faced declines of like 90 percent in their population yeah just in the last 20 years uh so my role was to to bring that information to the forest service for example and ask them not to keep planting up sitka spruce in the kind of wet marginal grassland habitats where breeding waders breed. Um, so, and just to clarify, they wouldn't know that you're coming, for example. Oh, like, no, they would. Yeah, or they, yeah, as, yeah. You would, you'd arrange it in advance, but it's not something that they're asking for, like you are approaching them 
No. Is it? We, uh, uh, yeah, approaching them, asking them for a meeting, sometimes pestering them. I, I remember okay. other other government officials refusing to meet with us. Wow. And I uh, made a complaint to the ombudsman, quoting how much they were meeting other sectors and they weren't meeting the, the agri sector. So then you would the, the ombudsman would make an intervention and write to that official or that unit wow. and say that, you know, you have to meet with them. So sometimes you're asking nicely and they say yes. Sometimes you're asking nicely and they're saying <laughs> they're completely ignoring you. Yeah. And then sometimes they're meeting with you reluctantly. And that's very hard. I guess in most of my work, people would, you'd build up a bit of a rapport with the relevant officials in whichever unit it might be, the Forest Service or the Department of Agriculture or the Department of Environment. Uh, and you're talking to them about things like water quality. So like SWAN, the Sustainable Water Network, would have had a lot of expertise on how things should be done differently to improve water quality in Ireland. And most of the local authorities and the Department of the Environment, they weren't really listening because they had their own way of doing things. And who are you to come in here and tell us how to do things? So then, you know, when you've communicated all of the science quite clearly to them and given them the policy recommendations and they they refuse to, to change the way that things are done, then we would go and organise protests outside and get some media attention or try and go on Morning Ireland or or do press releases, talk to the newspapers, again, who, who weren't necessarily interested. There's a lot more interest now that's a good aspect yes, yeah. than 20 years ago. There was very little interest in climate or biodiversity issues. And that's 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 quite different now, which is good. But yeah, it's it's going to the decision makers and trying to get them to improve the procedures around assessing licenses, or it might be peat bog harvesting and you know restoring peat bogs. I remember meeting with Board Namona twenty five years ago, twenty years ago, and asking them about peatland restoration and uh, closing down the, the Eden Dairy plant, and they weren't interested. Who are you to be telling us this? You know. Um, so yeah, that that's kind of policy and advocacy. It's it's trying to influence the decision makers in whatever way you can, nicely wow. or with protest or with <laughs> petitions or whatever. I mean, ideally, you're doing it with with evidence based recommendations. You're yes. coming in with the scientific the scientific data that says that things have to be done in a certain way, and then you're you're drawing in maybe input from academics or others to to show a, a better system. And normally, they will kind of refuse that but it's lovely to hear that like there's avenues that normal people like myself can then help so say if you guys are struggling to get policy enacted that you do a call out for the petition or for the protest and then you know everyday people or people who aren't experts in that field can can show up and support that which is kind of useful to know and I'm we're going to go into what made you kind of go more into then communications but before that what is it that the reluctant people the reluctant decision makers or the 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 ones who ignore you what is it they need is it because our society doesn't value nature in like our capitalism sense like are they yeah. looking for a price to be put on it is it because of our traditionally we we are we get red flags when we hear environmentalists and think they they're coming for our beef like what what do you think is the reason like how can we bridge that relationship kind mm. of issue that comes up between policymakers and decision makers that's a really huge yeah question. sorry <laughs> can you fix the whole thing on you yeah. uh, <laughs> any I, idea I mean, part, 
they don't they don't put an importance on nature like valuing ecosystem services and i don't mean a price tag and a, you know a, a euro calculation but they just don't see it as relevant like you know bogs are kind of wastelands and if you can harvest them and turn them into money great um we need industry yeah. and the industry needs somewhere to discharge their pollutants to and sure what's wrong with putting in the river now we've obviously come on a little bit from that but that that's we've not come that far yeah. from those attitudes so it's it's an attitude that nature doesn't matter and sure birds are declining well there'll be other birds are doing fine and sure aren't there other birds arriving in from the continent and, and these things are changing all the time or they just don't get the the severity and the significance and the consequence of of species loss i think another element is is arrogance when they see the you know i was often the the mm. younger female coming into a group of older suited males mm. who had been working in this industry for for 20 30 40 years and i'm coming in as a woman in my 20s or 30s uh with a whole load of you know opinions yeah. <laughs> and they just did you know they, they, there's a some kind of a human opposition to that they, just, yeah. they didn't want to be told and part of it is is also that the system is geared to favor the economic input so there's you know some of these industries are very strong and very effective at their lobbying and they frame the thinking within the local authority or the department, the government department that's relevant. So the lobbying is very, very strong. So even if you do get um, decision makers who, who really want to change things, they might not be able to because the, the lobbyists from from the pro-industry side yeah. are very strong. Right. So you might be coming to them trying to save the curlew, getting them to not plant in a, a site that curlews nest in. And then the the far, the far creature will be coming and saying no and like threatening all sorts or. Yeah, it's, it's not the best. In that case, it wouldn't have been Quilche because Quilche um, stopped new planting um, on, on, on new sites um, a way back. But it would be that the forest industry and, and the the drive to plant more spruce plantations to keep feeding the, the raw material into the industry and and yeah. the whole thing from the nursery stock to the, the foresters. But yeah, it's it's a big industry with a big employment and a significant economic benefit. Um, and they just don't want the hassle of, of screening for breeding waders. Yeah, they have to employ more people or take, things have to take time. They have to just be a bit more considerate and time is money in our society these days, unfortunately. But I know, obviously, there's there's so much to unpack there, but I yeah. know time is of the essence even in this yeah. interview. You eventually moved to communications. You moved away from policy. So why did that happen? Yeah, I, I mean, in, in part accident <laughs> uh, <life laughs> circumstances changed um but also i started doing eco i was invited in to do that um as a television presenter for this uh, you know environmental documentary program independently produced by earth horizons and, and screened on rte and i really loved that i got to go out yes. and meet really interesting people about issues that i care deeply about and i'm really interested in and you get to ask these experts loads of, you know, stupid questions. And half of the viewer, of course. Yeah. Um, but you get to just break it down and quiz them and pry and and why that and what's that and how do you do that and why do you do that and uh, and show me this. And 
And you're traveling to all of these places as you're doing it. Like it's not like a studio interview thing. Like you're out there with them. Yeah. Yeah. So I was going to the most scenic, beautiful, stunning parts of the country, specifically because it's for telly. So, you know, it it, it should look nice. Yeah. Um, And covering issues, everything from from fish farming, shellfish farming, forestry, um, bird declines, water quality, salmon migration, so many different issues agriculture, peat bogs, um, valuing nature and, and getting a good wide perspective from often academic experts or mm. communities who were enacting change. And that was one of the things that was really nice about doing that work was talking to to communities and people on the ground, normal people who are doing amazing, inspiring projects. Because if you had a half an hour show on RTE that was just all about how terrible everything is, yeah. then nobody's going to watch nobody's no. gonna listen you know we don't we don't want to know that we have to have the a bit of the background as to why that that issue is important and what's going on but then also the offering the the solutions and that was often talking to to community groups or conservation initiatives around the country which I found really inspiring yeah. especially when I spent 10 or 15 years you know banging my head off a brick wall most <laughs> of the time trying to convince you know people yeah. in government to change their ways so to get out there and see all the good work going on on the ground was was really inspiring mm-hmm. and then I started doing the, the radio program as well my little weekly dollop of nature called nature file on lyric and then started to, to make documentaries I started to make the radio documentaries because they were issues that I had wanted to cover in eco eye and was told they weren't like visual enough ah, <laughs> I see. So, okay, well I'm gonna make a radio documentary on it then and it's just it it's spun from there. Like my, I guess you, if you're communicating and writing scripts regularly, it becomes easier and easier. Yeah. And I love doing it. Amazing. No, and I think of what you're saying as well about like normal people just doing like communities doing the action that government kind of won't make legislation for it it is like that's why I I interview mostly like normal people quote-unquote on the podcast as opposed to experts because I think if we're always hearing from experts as much as they're so important in like getting the change we need we need a big like shift in I don't know the the hearts and minds of so many people and people are more likely to change or learn if they can relate to the person kind of talking to them about the thing as opposed to a man in in a suit or you know uh, someone with giving us a stern talking to about how terrible things are which is I mean it's good to definitely educate ourselves but it is really lovely when you see like oh look there's people doing something and they have another job maybe and I can do something like that too in my downtime um which is really cool a lot of experts um especially if they're they're very specialist uh, aren't particularly good at communicating. They'll use the, like the context, the vocabulary is kind of impenetrable, and they're they're yeah. often concerned about their peers uh, and making sure they say everything super correctly, and that makes it just less accessible to to regular people. But it is still really important to to listen to experts. I think that there's a there's a job on both, <laughs> but I think. A lot of the the very specialist expertise they need get better at communicating in normal language to normal people in a way that's yeah that that means something yeah which is where I think art can come in really useful and creative people and 
uh, storytellers, I think, because what they have to say is so important. But sometimes, yeah, you're you're so used to the academic speak and the reports and, and the findings and having to get all your language right. But a lot of us, we dis- we absorb information easier if it's kind of like more emotive and I'm going to link into your your book then that way because your book is obviously Wild Embrace which I have on my shelf here this was a birthday present that I got this year it was such a lovely gift um but it was so Wild Embrace is such a lovely example of like just get going real back to basics and connecting people to nature because yeah that's something that I think is important but I guess coming from you why did you write the book and why do you think connecting to the wonder of Ireland's natural world is important? Uh, it's a good question. Like as an ecologist and with the background that I have, I am so, so worried about the state of nature in Ireland because that's where I focus on mm. um, today. Like there's some really shocking facts. A third of our, our native bees, we have a hundred species of native bee. Uh, there's bumblebees and solitary bees, and a third of them are threatened with extinction. Crazy. Of our wild birds, sixty percent are amber or red listed as birds of conservation concern. Sixty percent of our bird species, like this, is mad. Mm. Half of our rivers are polluted. I mean, I could I could keep going on and on about wild plants, about lack of wild habitats, about loss of wetlands. And that's what I've been doing for a long time. Uh, and people obviously there's there's a limited amount of that that you can hear, uh, that you can listen to before you just want to go and, you know, run away and close your ears. And then I also because I'm an ecologist and I'm curious, I'm also in love with the, the little details that I see in the natural world every day. So in a way, I wanted to, to kind of blend those and bring bring people's awareness to nature and reconnect, because most of us are very disconnected with mm. the natural world or from the natural world. And the only thing that people hear is the bad news, the alarming trends and the decline and that those kind of headlines and yet they kind of don't know, you know, the basics, like how to recognise our, our native trees, the difference between a willow and a hawthorn and a hazel. It's amazing how many people don't know this or they don't kind of know that there's a difference between honeybees and, and wild bees or or even, so, I mean, everybody will recognise a blackbird and a robin. But there's incredible bird life out there. So I wanted to kind of help people to reconnect with the everyday wonders of nature, not yeah. necessarily the rare things, but to, yeah. to highlight how much is out there, how many wild species uh, there are that we can learn about, we can become curious about. There really is so much in Ireland to see and to learn about. And I don't think that we're really going to change anything in terms of the the, the, the wider context of of the reasons why nature is declining so rapidly and the same goes for climate. If we're just coming from a pace of this has to change, if we're angry, uh, I I think we need to come from a place of empathy with the natural world and love and connection. And that's a much better motivation for for action. And yeah, that that's kind of why why I wrote it. And then of course I loved writing it. Oh, well, that's good. And only working part time, so spending half of my time out in the wilds uh, uh, writing. But oh, really, beautiful. each of us reconnecting with the natural world in a way that enables us to take action. 
Mm, in and a I way think... that we're not going to get depleted or depressed or horrified in in a very short time. Yeah, because like you said, everything is always that it's spun negatively, and I think a lot of people go looking for spectacles and wonders in nature elsewhere. Like the seven wonders of the world is something that I actually hate the phrase of because I'm like, how can there only be seven? There's like way more, and you know, the Northern Lights, for example, we're seeing from Ireland recently, but. That did you see them? Was, I didn't see them. No, I was in Dublin Me and probably neither. asleep. Did you? No, I tried. I did actually go out and try and see them, but it was just really overcast. Yeah. Anyway. And like it is something and I would love to see them some someday. But I'm also like, if sometimes if I see miniature things blow my mind, if I see like a tiny, tiny flower that is like a per, it's like a daisy, but it's like five millimeters across I'm like what like how this is so small there's little things like that that I find so much joy in or like tiny little snail babies I don't know what it is I'm just like they're amazing but you're on the right track then Kira it is it's getting that that enchantment with those little tiny details and think the shapes and the patterns in the book I've got a whole section about the geometry of flowers and that can be the simple things that you see every day. But the geometry of flowers is mind blowing. Yeah, the fact like honeycomb, like how those things are made naturally, like yeah. blows my mind. But but absolutely boggles and even me. Moss. And, yeah. You went in your windowsill and you look at a bit of moss and you look at it with a hand lens or under a, a, a magnifying glass. Yeah, and you see yeah. that there's this incredible fractal floral shape in many of the common moss species that are all around us oh, all the time yeah 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 and people do be going buying moss killer for the grass and I'm like no yeah. and it's so they're so good air purifiers as well like and they're so soft and squidgy I have found I think I've always been an excitable person and I grew up in nature as well and animals are like better like a I loved animals more than people like <laughs> absolutely grown up and I think seeing them thrive is something that I'll always love and I've always loved but recently I've definitely with the more mindfulness and kind of um take not hands work that I've been trying to like incorporate I can feel my put my happiness pool is bigger because I do like the work that you're saying in the book of like going out and looking for the tiny wonders that we do experience every day and it's just like changing your mind frame and something else that blows my mind is a lack of awareness about like the biodiversity that we have in the oceans because we don't see we don't we can't we can't like see and breathe underwater like that well so we forget about the the whales and we forget about the dolphins and the or like the per is it the pearl freshwater pearl mussel is really endangered and we're one of the few the few places that have that so like with the knowledge can come sometimes come sadness if you become aware of like its decline but then that the love of it kind of like charges you or something Anyway, Both go hand in hand. Yeah, yeah. I, li- I listened to something recently about the, the science of awe and that sense of awe um, that comes from comes from many things. You can get it through through meditation and you can get it through being in, in the natural world. And, and that's really about opening yourself, just as you say, changing your frame of mind where you've got that, that calm and peaceful approach <laughs> to really look at something, to to observe the detail, to soak it up, to look at a foxglove and see the pattern of those little white dots as they go up the petals. Picture yourself as a bumblebee walking up the foxglove flower, like surrounded in this pink velvet with a, you know, a a highlighted walkway to get to the nectar at the base of the flower. These are little everyday things that, that can produce awe in us. And they um, have all sorts of amazing 
physical impacts on our body in terms of lowering our, our cortisol levels, our stress hormone, uh, making us more more open to other people, to other connections, um, really important for, for our mental health, creative thinking. So yeah, that, that idea of, of awe and connection and wonder with the natural world, which you don't have to go to faraway places to experience, like you're saying, even the, the animals here or so whooper swans flying overhead the other day and just stopped. Wow. Just amazing the sound of them, the, the V shape flying overhead. But yeah, to, to open ourselves up to that, Kara, like like you're saying, is so important in so many ways. And that that gives us that empathy to be able to engage with all the bad news mm. and not get depressed or overwhelmed, or at least counterbalance that. Often when I tell people that what I do, like I'm an ecologist, they're like, oh, my friend was in Botswana and he saw da 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 or oh, yeah. we went to Australia and we went to a national park. And straight away they're thinking, away. you know, David Attenborough type documentaries in faraway uh. places. We don't think of that kind of availability of all, we'll call it, on, on our doorstep in, in nature in Ireland. Mm, and the Irish hair. The sea, like Christopher, you're saying, you're talking about the sea. Even without snorkeling or diving, there's so much you can see just on the shore. I met somebody two days ago and they were all chuffed because they had a little mermaid's purse with them. Do you know the mermaid's purses? I've, I, yeah, I know them, but for, explain them for listeners who might not. They look like a little purse. They're like a little capsule, a kind of a leathery thing with tendrils yeah. coming out each corner. Uh, and they're called mermaid's purses, but they're the egg cases of sharks, skates and rays. Not all sharks, skates and rays but many of them put their eggs into these little egg cases and tie them to a frond of seaweed or maybe an under underwater, deep water coral reef. And that's where the eggs grow and develop and the little baby ray or baby shark will hatch out of. But you find these mermaids' purses washed up on the shore all over Ireland. They're like the size of your palm, is it? Yeah. Like they're, yeah, yeah, yeah. Some would be as small as me, or a little bit bigger than your thumb, and some are as big as, as your palm. So there's lots of different species. And you can go online and you can look up which which species that mermaid's purse would have been created yeah. by. But they just give a kind of a, an insight to what's going on out there, you know? Yes. Yeah, and yeah, sharks yeah. and skates and rays are the most incredible species. You know, they have this extra sense that we don't have. They have a, an ability to pick up on uh, electrical pulses. Okay. So if there's a fish or a shrimp hiding under the sand, you know, deep in the sea, they can pick up its heart rate and, and get it. Yeah. Yeah. They can pick up the frequency, the electromagnetic, I think it is, the, the, the electrical pulses of a, of a heartbeat. Without there's me it. sleeping through my alarm on my phone, like, <laughs> well, sharks can detect that. It's so yeah. amazing. But just, I guess that's a combination of, of like you say, wondering what's in the sea, going for a walk by the seaside, picking up a mermaid's purse, finding out what species it belongs mm. to and doing a little bit of a search on, on what what those species are capable of. And of course, I've covered a lot of this in the book, but there's just there's so many amazing things out there yeah. for us to, to learn about and discover. There's like a thousand apps and stuff that people can download to like identify bir bird song. There's actually a really cool bird song app that you can download if you're like, what is that tweeting? Um, I can't remember what it's called, but I'll link it in the show notes. But one of the handiest things I've uh, learned for help to identify plants and trees and stuff and like a mermaid purse, if I found one on the sea or a type of seaweed is the reverse photo search on Google. So you can like take a photograph on your phone and then 
if you have Google on your phone, I usually usually use Ecosia, but then for that, I'll go into the Chrome app and search with the photo. Like there's a camera icon, and if I select the photo of the flower, it will match it with like ones online, which can it can be a handy way if people don't have like pocketbooks or stuff like that. But there, you have been talking a lot about like researching and um, connecting to nature, and there's a lovely metaphor that you talk about in your book called the three legged stool, which I'd love for you to talk a little bit about. Uh, yeah, that that's something I came up with of, you know, wonder is great. We can all go around being in awe and wonder and fascinated. That's not going to really change that much in itself, is it? <laughs> no, you'll um, be really happy, but everything else might still <laughs> yeah. be going to shite. <laughs> yeah. And then the that we need knowledge. We all need to upscale ourselves. You know, like there's there's lots of stories of people who are super into nature going off and living in the woods and thinking, oh, aren't goats cute? I'll get a load of goats and I'll let them run loose. And the next thing, the whole woodland for for a 30 mile radius is overgrazed and destroyed. Mm. So there's knowledge. We need knowledge as well as wonder and then action. So I've got a a three-legged stool analogy that we need all three of those things. Otherwise, the stool falls over. And you can't just be going around with a whole load of knowledge and taking action um, without sustaining yourself with, with wonder. You know, you need all three for that stool to stand up and for for any kind of change to happen, you know? Yeah, it's a really, I just love the analogy so much because when I feel like I'm wasting my time as an activist doing something that isn't like progressive, I'm like, no, I'm well, I'm learning about something or I'm filling the cup or I'm taking action. And like, I think... I think a huge part of the crisis that we face is because people are disconnected. So people might think they have the knowledge and they might be inactive or they might be taking like action, the wrong kind of action, perhaps. And they're lacking the that kind of awe and connection. And I do wonder if if those um, men in suits that when you were in your you know, mid twenties and asking for like policy for the curlews or for for any kind of species or for for nature, how the reaction would have been different if they all, all the decision makers individually, personally had some kind of relationship with nature. Like I think we'd just be in such a better place. It makes so much sense to me. Yeah, yeah, it does. And that time to reflect and to really think deeply about things. There was research uh, published early last year I think it was possibly the year before uh, in Ireland and it was about the connection between time spent in nature and positive environmental behavior and there was a very strong not just a correlation but I think a, a causal relationship so time in nature helps us to whatever behave positively towards mm. the environment like driving less or flying less or eating less meat or whatever it is but time spent in nature uh, has has a positive association with you know better environmental behavior so that's very interesting in itself yeah and, and the other thing you skiving off and feeling bad when you're not doing your work that's when our best ideas come I always find if you're down <laughs> yeah. by the river skimming stones yeah. and there's been yeah. something that I can't figure out how to square in a script that I'm working on for a week and I'm like okay just forget about it go down to the river look at the water and skim stones and then Bing, this idea of how to resolve that problem will kind of magically appear. It's amazing. Mm-hmm. And, and there are, again, there's a lot of uh, scientific papers that I've, I've read that show the connection between creative thinking and time spent in nature. Yeah. 
Yeah, there's so many benefits. Like you mentioned, like uh, your stress hormones and everything go to, goes down. Like there's there's so many benefits to spending time in nature. Is there a way of doing it wrong? Uh, there isn't a way of doing it wrong, but there's, I guess, there's optimal. <laughs> um, <laughs> There's not much point going forest bathing in a Sitka spruce plantation, for example. Mm -hmm. Yeah. To go, like, the the quality of the habitat matters quite a lot, the diversity. And, I mean, that can be, you know, in Dublin, you can go down the the Shelley Banks or places there. there, It's not that they're wild, free, natural places. It's right beside Dublin Port. But you can watch terns, these incredible, migratory, beautiful, elegant birds flying overhead. You can see a lot even in, in... in places like that I think that one of the, the best ways is to find a place that's that's near you that's accessible and go there regularly and go there throughout the year and observe because the more for, like with a person you know you can meet somebody once or twice and you think they're really interesting the more you meet them and the more you get to know them the more you get to know the nuances of their personality mm. and the more curious you can get you know um, it's a bit like that. Familiarize yourself with with one place that's as wild and natural as possible, um, and go there regularly and observe what you can. And you know, take a little notebook, maybe stay off your phone. <laughs> yeah. Um. I I um I love having a little notebook and a pencil and just making notes and putting down queries and questions and looking them up later when I go home and not talking. So it go with a friend by all means, but say to each other, okay, we're not going to talk now for twenty minutes. Uh, or mostly not going to talk while we're out for the hour because you just be yabbering away to each other and you don't notice really anything. Yeah, yeah, that's such a good point. Uh, so to to be in that place in a way that you're observant and quiet and open, mm. possibly even sit still for a while and see what, what comes and goes. You know, a lot of wildlife, wild animals um, are very attuned to our presence and will hide away when they when they hear or see us coming. But even just plants, like looking at the buds of a plant with the spring leaves unfurling in spring through to summer, seeing the seed develop in, in later in the summer, in the autumn. A lot of things are medicinal or edible, interact in any way you can. Like maybe, you know, I love things like picking blackberries or making yes. syrup or gathering up bits of seaweed on the shore and drying that out and, and eating it. If there's there's ways that you can interact with that habitat type that that just that helps for people mm. like you and me. I think we're we're active and we're curious and it's nice to be doing something. Uh, but to familiarize yourself with one or two places and go regularly is is probably uh, a good approach. Yeah, and seeing the seasons change is really nice as well. And I've been noticing this feeling that I've had every autumn the last couple of years. If I sometimes I'll see a leaf just after being blown off the the tree and it's falling to the ground and I'm like oh my god I'm just after catching the time that that leaf is after going okay that's me done for the year and they're like going to the ground and I think of all the sunshine that they like ingested over the year and I'm like it puts time in perspective of me and just catching that moment there and then of wow that leaf was on that tree like all year and I just saw it fall off like it's a really weird thing of like thank you universe but it's so much fun like if if other people like you feel silly or childlike it's just it's just fun I think it's really important not to dismiss these things as yeah. silly or childlike because that's what we do. And that's a that's a cultural, that's a patriarchal yeah. cultural thing that things in towns and cities and things made by humans, by mankind, uh, are worthy of our attention. Whereas gathering up autumn leaves or being like, 
I, I, after I started, during lockdown, I started collecting up autumn leaves and putting them uh, in between the leaves of a big old book. <laughs> and, Love it. Uh, yes, yes. And putting them out and making these kind of um, collages with them. Gorgeous. And making really nice pictures yeah. and paintings and art and even for Christmas cards and then drawing over them with the, you know, a, a silver um, marker. Yeah, <laughs> making them, making them like, art. yeah, there's so uh, many fun things that you could do. I love people who like if you're out walking and they'll rearrange stones or leaves into like a pattern on the floor or something like that is like a little present for anyone else who sees it like it's so satisfying that. you're right on a beach or in a wood and another thing that you can do like like you say you'll go out and you'll look at a leaf and you'll admire how that it's been photosynthesizing all year long and now it's just falling off to learn maybe a new plant a new tree and a new bird each week to observe and to learn and, and make kind of targets. I am that I'm going to write that in. Their familiarity. I'm going to do that. Now, obviously, a tree is a plant, but you know what I mean. Well, yes, 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 yes. Because <laughs> <laughs> like when I started out, I didn't, I didn't know these things. Like I did environmental science, but you know, we weren't trained up in in plant identification or bird identification or anything like that. And it's just slowly, gradually over the mm. years, I've been stunned with how you can kind of pick up a lot of knowledge with very little effort. Just being persistent. And also, and there's no goal. Like a lot of people are like, oh, yes, I must, you know, collect all the Pokemon. I must know all the birds. Like, or I must become an expert. I know, like the, yeah, the goal no. does. So sure, if you want to train and you want to become, a, have a PhD doctorate, that, that's one thing. But the majority of us won't. Like, I'm not an expert in anything. I work in theatre. Like, this is a, a, just something I really enjoy and I think just to get rid of any kind of goal setting and it's just to connect more is, is something that people could could uh, work towards, perhaps. As yeah. Work towards having no goal. <laughs> yeah, just I, I call it fluency, that we've, we've lost the, the language of nature. And when we can name things, then you start to notice where they grow and who they hang out with and what kind of places they like to grow mm. in and how they change through the seasons. And it, it, it's a fluency. Yeah. And the joy that I feel when I recognize wild garlic now, which two years ago I would not have known, like everyone knows blackberries, not everyone knows wild garlic. And now when I see it in the spring, I'm like, oh my God, let's make pesto. Like yeah. and that that joy of that intelligence that we've kind of lost or we are losing and we haven't lost it completely. It, there's so much to benefit from like gaining that back. But anyway, Anya, I could talk to you so much, but there's still a couple of questions that I still want to ask you before um, we round off. And one of those is all your time in EcoEye and I guess doing your radio documentaries, like what are some of your... Well, I guess EcoEye was such a big part of your your um, career and it so sadly just recently ended. What is some of your like most favorite memories from that or things that you think will stick with you forever? God, that's really hard. I, I know, so you've I had so many. Yeah. I haven't prepared for that question. The thing <laughs> that just jumped in, into my mind, though, mm-hmm. sharks. So we were talking about marine protected areas and covering that this drive currently to, to get the government to designate more marine protected areas where the pressure is taken off like fish nursery habitats and, and marine life, because we all know marine life is is diminishing rapidly and fish populations and everything else are so down. It's like, well, you know, how do we tell that story in a nice, accessible way? How do we, you know, click into people to to connect on some kind of more emotional level? Oh, sharks. Let's look at sharks. We, went out and we discovered that there's 
God, I don't remember how many, but there's there are loads of different shark species <laughs> living in Irish waters. Yeah. Like dozens. Yeah. Uh, so we wanted to go and see some. But again, that's quite hard to do because we're not a wildlife crew. We don't have, you know, the, the resources. You don't have it. David Amber's budget. No, <laughs> to put a cameraman out there for five weeks waiting to hope uh, sharks pass by the frame or something. But uh, we went out with a, a research team from Trinity who were looking at blue sharks. Yeah, we, so we needed to, to weigh them, measure them and get tissue samples. That That's what the research team were doing. And we went out and we caught a blue shark. And it was so overwhelming. Like, I was very excited to do this. But as soon as this shark came on board, oh, my God, it was hard. Now, they, they there's it's one of the teams straight away sets the timer and they keep the shark out for, for less than three minutes, I think it was, and put it back in the water. So How big is a blue shark? Much bigger than me. So certainly a, a long, about as long as me. Um, I am one, one meter 80, something like wow. that. So it could be about two meters long. Wow. Okay. And substantial size. Yeah. Yes. And the most incredible thing was the blue. So when you asked me what was one of the most amazing things, I'm thinking of the blue on the skin of this wow. blue shark. It was like this incredible shimmering blue. Like, it, I don't know yeah. how to describe it. It, it was, was like if someone, in, in, it was beside the color dictionary, it would be blue shark to describe the word yeah. blue. But a really intense, bright, wow. shimmery kind of blue. Um, but yeah, that that was particularly amazing to, to be in such close proximity with such an incredible, stunning, beautiful, amazing animal. And yeah, they, they, they kept it hydrated and they kept its eyes covered that it wouldn't freak out. And they put them back in the water and off they go. Radio tagged so that we can tell more. There was this thing about a lot of blue sharks turning up in mm. Irish waters pregnant uh, at a particular time of year. So we suspect that there is there are certain territories here in Irish waters that are nursery grounds where they come to, to give birth. Yeah. Uh, so obviously, if the researchers can find out that that is the case, then that would be a place where we should put a marine protected area in order to yes. protect those sharks. Lovely. We, you talked a lot about, I guess this, obviously the podcast is called Book of Leaves. People are listening to this to take a leaf out of your book. And I think spending time in nature is a big part of that and finding the natural wonders. But are there any other suggestions that you'd like to share with people? You're spending time in nature and cultivating your curiosity and learning species, learning things, finding out. Like there's the, there's the direct observation, obviously. But there's also reading and discovering and understanding how ecosystems work. And in that way, uh, having more empathy. So mm-hmm. when we hear about the decline of lapwing, which are this incredible bird, you know, oh, who really cares about lapwing declining? And sure, can they not just adapt? Like, I know we're, we're plowing up more fields and we're draining more wetlands, but would they not find somewhere else to go and nest? I'd like that less people ask that question. Um, mm. And I think if they were out in nature more and curious and understanding things a bit better, they, 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 wouldn't, uh, they wouldn't need to ask that. Yeah, that's a really, really lovely point. And the power of Len, if you want to impart your wisdom and curiosity on someone else, like drawing someone's attention to something that you find fascinating, like they might not be in the climate space, but everyone can mutually look at a rainbow and go, wow, that's a really bright one or it's a double rainbow. You know, like there's there's yeah. ways that we can bring people who might not be active, who might say things like that, you know, they'll be fine. Nature, nature will be fine. The planet will be fine. It's like, I, yeah, but it, but it doesn't have to be this way. Like we have the power to change. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And actually you touch on something else really important there, Cara. 
it's great that we share our environmental interests, our passions with other people. We have the conversations with others in our family, our neighbours, our, our peers, but it's it's crucial to not be preachy. Yeah. And I think I would love more people who were engaged in nature to not go around telling everybody else that they're wrong <laughs> and how they should be changing and doing things differently. I would love if more of us ecologically, environmentally minded people were better at balancing the joy, the wonder, the awe with how things have to change. Because there is a tendency in, in environmentally motivated people to go around, to, they know it all better and tell everybody else how they're doing it wrong. And that just really gets people's backs up. Yeah, big time. So to talk about things in a, in a, in a beautiful, wondrous way to, to bring other people's attention to the joy mm. of that, that, that thing. And usually if you're just passionate as so it's supposed to be like, oh, guys, you need to care about these baby snails. When I have friends talking about something they're really passionate about that I might find boring or not interested in, I become interested because of their love for it. So th- that sometimes is is all you need. Like it's your love yeah. for it will draw their attention to it. Like that's a really good tip. And then the last question I want to ask is taking a leaf out of Rob Hopkins book, a literal book called From What Is to What If, he... Uh, does this time machine exercise where he he do, has his own podcast as well, where he'll ask people to travel to the future and imagine that basically ch- climate change has been fixed. So it can be a hundred years in advance. We've we've acted as much as we need today. There we no longer have bees endangered or la- birds endangered. What does this future look like if you were to walk around in the present tense? What's one of your favorite things about it? That's a really beautiful exercise. Um, there's so much, I guess, a whole lot less um, anthropogenic noise. So roads and motorways and cars and that, that kind of cluttering of, of man-made noise. Um, mm. I would like to have a lot more rustling of tree leaves and uh, birdsong and bees buzzing and, and all of those sounds of nature. I would like those to be prevalent in everybody's lives, every strata of society, every profe- uh, profession, that it's not just something that uh, well-off people in leafy suburbs or with holiday homes uh, in gorgeous parts of the country can experience, but that everybody experiences the, the, the soundscape, natural soundscapes on a daily basis. That would be very exciting in that, mm. that imagined future. Yeah, that's a lovely thing to end on. What an amazing chat. I hope you guys could feel the joy that we were feeling as we were talking about all the things that we love about nature. I'm definitely going to take a leaf out of her book and start trying to learn a bird, a tree and a plant every week. And there's been so many exercises of hers that I've been doing in the book already in Wild Embrace. So it's a lovely, it's a lovely book. I really do recommend it. And I've linked her podcast and EcoEye as well in the show notes. If you're listening abroad, you probably won't be able to watch EcoEye on the player, but um, you can read her book or you can absolutely listen to the podcast I'm sure so definitely check out Anya's work hopefully you're also staying around to figure out what I'm doing for episode 100 I was hemming and hawing or is it humming and hawing I'm not sure anyway about what to do and I've come to the conclusion that like the whole idea of this podcast is about the leaves this podcast is all about getting suggestions from people whether they are experts or parents or activists who, who whatever they are whatever field they work in there are suggestions that are mentioned in every episode so if there is a leaf that you've taken 
out of the book of one of my guests, I would love for you to send me a message or an email on my social media, which are all linked in the show notes. You'll find Book of Leaves podcast on any social media platform. Or you can send me an email to bookofleavespodcast at gmail.com. Or you can also send me a voice recording if you want to record on your uh, phone a little voice clip. Don't worry about the quality and just email that to me. I would love to hear what suggestions that have come up in the podcast that you have taken on or you might have already taken on and what has been the reaction. Has there been a ripple effect? If you put a pond in, has any bugs come to it? If you've been spending more time in nature, have you been feeling the positivities of that? I would love to hear the suggestions that you've been taking. It could be from the very first episode that you got yourself something cork, made a cork instead of leather and you get a load of compliments from it. So is there any suggestions that have come up in the podcast or that you would like to impart on other listeners that hasn't come up yet. So one of those two things and I would love to compile a list where I'm either reading out your messages or playing your voice clips. So please do send in your voice notes and I'm going to put everyone who sends me something into a raffle and I'll get a uh, one of those online random winner picker things to pick someone that I'll send a little hamper to just because I'm feeling so excited that I reached 100 episodes over four years. It's pretty cool. So yeah, that's what I'm going to do. If you want to talk about multiple leaves, absolutely. If you want to talk about your favourite episode and what what they inspired you to do, you can do that. But yeah, I would just love to hear one of your favourite things and I'll make a little episode out of it for episode 100. So that's it. If you do like this podcast, please leave it a review on Apple Podcasts or tap five stars on Spotify. And you can also support it on Buy Me A Coffee or Patreon. But again, there's a lot going on in the world right now. So do not put yourself under any pressure to do that if you can't um so yeah i really appreciate you taking the time to listen to this episode let me know your thoughts and i'll be back again in two weeks time take care of yourselves